1: In the aftermath of the Union defeat in the first major battle of the American Civil War at Bull Run in July 1861, Lincoln summoned General McClellan and his intelligence chief to Washington. That intelligence chief wrote, rather grandiosely, In operating my detective force, I shall endeavour to test all the suspected persons in various ways. I shall see access to their houses, clubs and places of resort. Managing that among the the members of my force shall be the ostensible representatives of every grade of society, from the highest to the most menial. Some shall have the entree to the gilded saloon of the suspected aristocratic traitors and be their honoured guests, while others will act in the capacity of valets or domestics of various kinds and try the efficacy of such relations with the household to gain evidence. That man was Alan Pinkerton. And today we're going to discuss Pinkerton and his organization, the Pinkerton National Detective Agency, who encapsulate much of what 19th century America is about immigration, westward expansion, big business, labor relations, war, and politics.
2: Hello and welcome to episode 37 of American History 2. I'm Mark McClay and I'm joined, as always, by Malcolm Craig. And Malcolm, we are back to our roots today, just the two of us. Uh, I, hello and how are you? Very well, thank you. Oh, the romance. Yes, uh, no, I can hear the all in the back, to,
1: back to the golden days. Uh, yeah, no, so it's very exciting to be kind of like talking about uh, about Pinkerton today because he's a really fascinating individual. And you know, given the contemporary relevance of surveillance... Uh, in our kind of 21st century society, it's interesting to look back upon the the history of surveillance in the United States and the the significance of this relationship between business and surveillance, which is something we think of, you know, these days with Google and Facebook and all that kind of thing, but goes back to the 19th century uh, in America. So, as a fascinating topic, and also, you know, as I said, it brings in kind of immigration, uh, Pinkerton being a Scotsman who went to America and all that kind of thing. So, fascinating figure and someone I'm really looking forward to discussing.
2: Yeah, exactly. He's sort of a a forgotten man here in Scotland as well. There isn't really any great memorial to him or anything like that. But, um, you know, you look more and more into who he was and the effect his agency had in the United States is somewhat surprising in that sense.
1: Yeah, indeed. So let's, let's kick off. So, I mean, who was Alan Pinkerton?
2: Well, that's an, that's a, that, that, that can be somewhat of a tricky question because it's somewhat shrouded in mystery. Many biographers have sort of struggled to get their arms around who Alan Pinkerton was, in large part due to his own voluminous and very exaggerated, as you pointed out in the opening vignette, writings about himself and his agency. And also, a lot of his early papers were destroyed in the in the sort of Great Fire of Chicago in the, in eighteen seventy one, much to the chagrin of, of 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 historians who have looked into him. Yeah, so he's born um, in eighteen nineteen in what would have been at the time the notorious Glasgow Gorbals region. Um, as very much sort of born born into humble beginnings, and he becomes a a, a young Scottish radical, what was known as a, what was known as a Chartist at the time, which was a a movement in the sort of in the industrial areas of Scotland and in the industrial North in England, uh, which was part of sort of a worker protest that demanded electoral reform and votes for working men. And Alan gets really quite deep into this. You know, he, he's present at some of the riots um, that that happen around the Chartists and some of the protests. And he happens to—we're not quite sure why he emigrated um, when he did, but it tended to coincide with when the British government was cracking down on Chartists. Um, so he jumps on the boat, as many people in Scotland did at the time, uh, emigrated to Canada, and then eventually moved on to the, the United States, um, landing in, uh, perhaps not ironically because it was a Scottish society, but Dundee in, in Illinois, not too far northwest of Chicago.
1: So, yeah, I mean, it is interesting, kind of Pinkerton's background here, because there's the, the lingering suspicion that one of the reasons he you know, left Scotland was that he'd been a a police spy within the, the Scottish Radicals, with a capital R, interestingly, could mm-hmm. kind differentiate of differentiated himself slightly from the English uh, Chartists, uh, that he'd been... A, the suggestion that he was actually spying on his fellow radicals and hence had to leave, or the suggestion that the police were on his
2: tail and he had to hightail it to the United States. Yeah, as I said, it's all shrouded the mystery. I mean... I don't think like just the way that he becomes. I mean, it's not like he goes to America and automatically becomes a spy. Like, or becomes that? It sort of takes a while for that sort of career path to take him. So, I'd be surprised if the former was true. But I mean, you know, we're sort of best guessing at this. Yeah, he's point. a man surrounded, surrounded
1: in mystery. Yeah. So, how how does he come to found the the Pinkerton Detective Agency? And how? I mean,
2: he obviously needs to have some kind of initial successes to get himself going. Yeah, so I mean, he's, he's very much a self-made man in Dundee. Um, he's, he's he's a cooper, you know, he makes barrels and all these kind of things. Um, and and he, he buys his own plot of land, as many did on the frontier back then, um, and has his own cooperage. Um, but he, he sort of makes his name in Dundee um, by exposing uh, some counterfeiters that had been operating uh, in the region um, that were sort of, they were gathering in an island and... He spotted the island, went out there, looked after looked at them, found them and and exposed them. And and this eventually leads him to to Chicago. Um very much a sort of boom city at, at this point. Um and also because of that, because of the sort of unruly nature of it all is a very much a hub of counterfeiting. Um so the sheriff sees what Alan Pinkerton's done and appoints him deputy sheriff. Um, and for, and from there um, he, he makes many contacts enhances his reputation further and eventually along with a with a, a law partner he forms the northwestern police agency um, which would be the forerunner for the pinkerton national detective agency and they really sort of get their big breaks first of all with the railroad companies who who need to who need to protect sort of the, the mail that's being delivered. There's a lot of money is embezzled. There's people that know how to find coins and envelopes and sort of sneak out money that's as it's coming across. Uh, so together with the, the sort of the big railroad conglomerates and also the express delivery companies, um, Pinkerton's begins to make its name through a variety of its methods and perhaps the most famous one of these in 1858, uh, just you know, not long before the Civil War, is the Adams Express case, which is which is going on mostly down in Montgomery, in Alabama. And uh, one of the key tactics of the Pinkerton Agency is, is sort of infiltration, so they send down agents. Um, who who sort of infiltrate themselves and ingratiate themselves into society, posing as different characters. It's you know something very much out of what we'd think is a spy novel or a or a, or a television show about these kind of things. Uh, and they sort of play the, a married couple off against each other uh, and eventually expose uh, the fraud that had been going on. Um, and that further enhances uh, the the agency's reputation. And interestingly, um, Alan Pinkerton actually hires sort of the first ever female detectives. Um, and the, the the most famous of these was it was Kate Warren, who became a sort of very well-known figure in her own right over the next 50 years. And it's quite interesting that Pinkerton didn't really care. He just thought, well, you know, of course it makes sense to hire women because they can go places that men can't go. Uh, whereas his sons, who, as we'll maybe discuss later, were slightly Worse characters, one might say, or less tasteful characters. They they fired all the the female detectives in the early nineteen hundreds and said no detectives is a man's game. So it's quite interesting that Pinkerton had this sort of progressive, even at the time would have been radical uh policy. I mean that sounds like an incredibly short sighted
1: policy on the part of his sons when you're trying to conduct, you know, surveillance and infiltration operations.
2: Just a tad, just yes. a tad.
1: <laughs> so, I mean, obviously, I mean, as we just kind of mentioned there, the, I mean, the 1850s are the era where civil war tensions are ramping up, and this is something we've covered in the last couple of episodes uh, about the civil war. So did Pinkerton have any, I mean, strong sympathies with, with either side in the kind of the looming civil war? I mean, Illinois at the time is, you know, frequently divided on kind of this north-south kind of kind of issue. Did he Did he have, you know, strong leanings towards
2: any particular point of view? definitely and i think i think this is where we can see alan pinkerton in the most favorable light um is on the the issue of, of slavery he was he was an abolitionist um he was a state rep As early as 1848, it was a state representative uh, for Illinois' Liberty Party, which was, you know, an anti-slavery, one of of the many anti-slavery parties uh, or abolitionist parties that emerged prior to the Civil War. And indeed, one of the reasons he leaves Dundee in the first place is that he's disillusioned by the um, anti-abolitionism that prevails in that society, particularly amongst the sort of elder folk And he actually is, you know, supposedly part of the underground railroad system of smuggling slaves um, out of the slave states and helping them on to Canada, Um, many sort of staying in Pinkerton's own house in Chicago. And even more so, he also provides help and raises funds for, you know, the very controversial figure of John Brown, he of sort of the, you know, the massacre fame, and then attempt to start a rebellion in Harper's Ferry and eventually hanged by... You know the the Virginian government at the time, so so Alan Alan Pinkerton's very much cast his lot in with them. He also actually, interestingly enough, has contact with Lincoln prior to the Civil War, um, as they end up involved. Uh, you know, Lincoln being a lawyer um, before before being president, he he sort of has has contact with them um, with the um, Pinkerton through 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 a case that they were both pursuing. But strangely, the man that Pinkerton really, you know. Falls for you know that has a, has, a, has you know what historians can see as a bit of a bromance with is uh, is George McClellan um, the you know the famous Civil War, Civil War general who Lincoln will fire um, eventually and then run against in eighteen sixty four you know McClellan was a Democrat and he was he was a bit of a conservative Democrat not anywhere near Pinkerton on on the slave issue and um, so. It's kind of interesting how the sort of these two sides, but definitely Alan Pinkerton was was an outspoken abolitionist. And I think that sits with his sort of radical chartist background that that we Mm. talked about before. So, I
1: mean, the Civil War comes along and, uh, you know, Pinkerton's appointed. I mean, he's appointed by the railroads as part of Lincoln's security detail when he's making this kind of meandering trip to Washington for his inauguration. And on the last leg of the journey, I mean, he's supposed to stop off in Baltimore for the night, which is, you know, a city in a you know, in Maryland, a slave state, I mean, really quite pro-Confederate. Uh, and Pinkerton warns Lincoln to travel in disguise on the night train through Baltimore and straight to Washington because he he comes up with this kind of, say there's going to be a plot to assassinate him. And he, I mean, of course, I think his tales of spies inside the Confederacy and this plot and everything are pretty heavily embroidered. And Pinkerton makes a really big song and dance about it. But you know, Lincoln's persuaded of the, the truth of what Pinkerton's saying because he gets a letter from his uh, respected Secretary of State, William H. Seward, and the Army Chief, like General Winfield Scott. So he travels to his inauguration under an assumed name, and this causes persistent rumors that he disguised himself as an old woman uh, to travel to his inauguration. So, I mean, what have historians really made of this, the so-called Baltimore plot, and how does it affect Pinkerton's relationship and his relationships with power and his reputation?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the sort of tone of your voice said that, of what most historians have thought, is that Pinkerton somewhat, they believe, exaggerated. Um, some even, like, uh, around about the time, like, the very, the immediate histories of, of the Civil War that were written after it, there was this back and forth where there was one, a historian writes a history of the Civil War. First case, it's kind of Pinkerton's account of it. Then someone else writes in and says, no, no, no. So they have, bring out a second volume. It changes to, oh, Pinkerton was completely exaggerating. Then they have a third volume where it changes back. So historians have never really made up their minds since then. But, I mean, some some do point to the fact that, you know, two months later, Union Army troops, uh, you know, were traveling to Washington, were traveling through Baltimore. And, um, you know, they were attacked while they were doing that by those with pro-Confederate sympathies. Maryland state legislature was arrested before it could, because they were worried they were going to vote for secession. And, but what can be said is that Lincoln very much came to regret the, the whole episode. It very much dogged him. It was something to sort of beat Lincoln up over, particularly by the South. You know, this sort of covered this angle. And the media, even Republican newspapers, you know, mercilessly mock Lincoln for it. Sort of, and you have cartoons showing him in, in a Scotch cap and a short kilt. I don't know why that would be an offence, I have to say. Um, or, 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 you know, perhaps even worse of him, you know, in an old woman's shawl, as you mentioned. And it becomes known as the, the Flight of Abraham. Um, so... Uh, but despite this, you know, it still didn't completely ruin Pinkerton's standing with Lincoln. You know, he, he gets to meet again several times with Lincoln during the war and with Seward. And, and he also, you know, he ends up uh, becoming uh, the intelligence chief for General McClellan, uh, who he already had a friendship with. Um, And and the upshot of this sort of appointment with McClellan, though, is is what the historian Christopher Andrew describes as a, quote, chaotic campaign against subversion um, and an equally uncoordinated espionage campaign against the South, which perhaps didn't meet well, Alan Pinkerton portrayed it to be. Mm. So, but I mean,
1: despite the kind of the chaos, you know, Chris Andrew points out, you know, the chaos of the, the kind of subversion camp, you know, campaign against internal subversion within the union and the, the rather kind of, you know, flaky espionage campaign against the South. Pinkerton did have some successes uh, as part of his role as an intelligence
2: chief. So what about the wild rose of the Confederacy? Ah, the Wild Rose of the Confederacy. What a great name. Um, Yeah, so this sort of refers to to Rose O'Neill Greenhow, who... Bizarrely, was the aunt to the, the, the famous uh, Stephen Douglas, Lincoln's old opponent and the, the Northern Democrat at the time? Oh, Lincoln-Douglas debates fame. Indeed, that one. Um, she was his aunt, even though she's three years younger than him. So, you know, it was the 19th century. What are you going to do? Um, and uh, Pinkerton sort of describes her in his memoirs as, in the prime of life, frequently beautiful and accomplished. And she was this incredibly well-connected socialite to the sort of great and the good in, in Washington. Um, And she was close to the previous president, James Buchanan. Indeed, like some in the media, dubbed her Queen of the Rosewater Administration. And she was part of, uh, you know, what was a not unsubstantial Confederate ring of spies uh, for the Confederacy that existed in Washington, which after all was still heavily quite a Southern city. Uh, And she has this, perhaps her biggest success is supposedly in being able to warn the south of the Union's, Union Army's plans uh, before the Battle of Bull Run. And she, so, such did she do so well. She actually was sent a message by you know, Confederate President Jefferson Davis to thank her um, for the intelligence she passed along. Um, and it's not 100% sure where she got the intelligence from, but it actually emerged later, um, a couple of years later, that she'd been having an affair with Henry Wilson, who was the chair of the Military Affairs Committee, a very powerful committee um, on the side of the Union, and who would be future vice president to Ulysses S. Grant. So she was very much known for being able to charm uh, charm those in power. And eventually they sort of find out that the Pinkertons, uh, and Alan Pinkerton especially, sort of on her tail, uh, and they almost start to have a bit of fun with it and sort of are very brazen in the ways they're passing on, um, passing on information because they think they can get away with it really um, but eventually Pinkerton's able to gather enough evidence, places are under house arrest. But even then she becomes a sort of cause celeb in the media, you know, it very much receives a lot of sympathy. Um, and Lincoln even has to deal with sort of entreaties from Britain and France to to, to let go America's most beautiful spy. Um, but eventually she is sort of locked up with her daughter in in the old Capitol building, um uh, and then eventually deported to Richmond and and she's she's part of what is unveiled to be quite a large Confederate spy ring in Washington and so when she when she's deported to uh, Richmond or the Rose Greenhow arrives to heroines welcome and she becomes this courier of messages for the Confederate government to Britain she goes to Britain writes her memoirs and as she's returning from Britain her ship runs aground and she actually drowns. Um, supposedly weighed down by two thousand dollars worth of gold um, that had been sewn into sewn into our underclothes. I suppose that the sort of the, the lesson we can draw from the, the the whole rose of the Confederacy story though is just that it goes to show why a detective agency like the Pinkertons held appeal to those in power during the Civil War. And Alan Pinkerton was by no means the only um, you know detective agency that was employed, employed, but he's perhaps emerged as the most famous
1: and so overall, I mean, Pinkerton had something of a kind of you know mixed civil war in terms of the results of his intelligence and counterintelligence operations.
2: Yeah, I mean, perhaps uh, if on a personal level, the saddest thing that happens for him is one of his agents, Tim Webster, is, is caught um, and exposed while infiltrating uh, an area in Richmond. He becomes sick. Um, and then Pinkerton sends in a couple of other agents to see how he's getting on. One of them exposes a the lot of them, and eventually Tim Webster is hanged by the South, which is one of the first times this has happened, and so it really ramps up ill-feeling on both sides, um, and and sort of his name is evoked when the North decides to, to hang Southern sympathisers in the future as well. Um, however, perhaps the worst moment for Pinkerton's reputation in history um, uh, comes during McClellan's disastrous march on Richmond, um, in Virginia, and McClellan one of the reasons he doesn 't kick on to, to pursue um, to pursue these armies is the fact he believes himself to be outmanned and outgunned when in fact he significantly outnumbered these Confederate opponents. Uh, and rather than providing his boss with reliable intelligence, Pinkerton had fed into the sort of classic intelligence trap of giving his superiors what they wanted to hear, not what they needed to hear. And he sort of estimated Confederate forces. Oh, this, this, oh, General, there's two hundred thousand men strong over there. Yeah, there was about eighty-five thousand, um, and the Union forces had around a hundred thousand. And this really, fin- this was the final straw for Lincoln. Um, who eventually f- who fired McClellan off the off as from leading the army of the the Potom- Potomac, um, and along with it, Pinkerton decides to resign. Um, so Pinkerton then becomes a war Democrat who supported McClellan's un- ultimately un- unsuccessful bid in eighteen sixty four. Um, but overall, despite mixed success, you know the historian O'Hara says you know Pinkerton not only made his reputation during the war, but it also made a great deal of money. So. You know, it wasn't the worst four years in the life of Alan Pickerton, I don't think. And I mean, he was
1: not one to fade away into the background. I mean, he pretentiously titles himself the chief of the United States Secret Service <laughs> in his rather grandiose memoirs. I mean, they were only there to burnish his his reputation. Uh, and I mean, this leads to another persistent myth of you know U.S. intelligence and law enforcement, that the U.S. Secret Service was a wartime creation. Uh, when, in fact, the genuine U.S. Secret Service of that name was not established by the Treasury Department until the war's conclusion. Uh, So so Pinkerton is really bigging himself up as a result of the Civil War.
2: Yeah, um, and of course, Pinkerton always claimed that had he remained by the President's side as he was in Baltimore in 1861, he would have saved Honest Abe from uh, the Assassin's Bullet in 1865. Uh, and and after the war, the, the Pinkerton agency sort of goes back to to chasing railroad thieves and fraudsters with with with, with mixed success. They had some high pro, they did have some high profile successes, um, but also Alan Pinkerton sort of fails in his own exotic and increasingly personal bid to land the notorious Jesse James, um, and eventually giving up when one of his agents is discovered and killed by James. And it's, it's quite interesting because it's sort of a it becomes seen in the South as, a, as as another sort of cause of Jesse James, the Southern bandit, escaping the Northern aggressors uh, in the form of Alan Pinkerton and the Pinkerton Defec- Detective Agency. And in 1872, it's sort of a strange episode. He's also hired by the Spanish government to repress a revolution in Cuba or help repress a revolution in Cuba. That, and that revolution would have ended slavery, or it's not, but it's not clear whether Pinkerton knew that was the goal of the revolution or not um because given his abolitionist past you would you would think it was surprising but perhaps you know the arrival of the gilded age and the thirst for money um had eroded the old radical in pinkerton and pinkerton himself then dies in 1884 again shrouded in mystery there's about five different explanations for how it happened and uh, one of them he fell over and bit his tongue but uh, <laughs> and developed gangrene off the back of it um and by this point the agency was shifting into helping big business against strikes. Um and and after he died the the Pinkerton agency was handed on to his sons, uh from which point the agency had fewer qualms about arming agents who were going in to quell these strikes. Um and, and I think maybe that's a, a good time to sort of shift our focus onto how the how the Pinkertons, you know, sort of how they fit into the Gilded Age and the rise of big business. Uh, and and I think we're going to turn to you uh, to help us more on this side. As one historian notes, the sort of the term Pinkertonism emerges and it sort of becomes. They become synonymous with the rise of the sort of plutocratic elite men like Steele, baron Andrew Carnegie and other Scottish-American who hire their own spies and thugs. And and indeed, this is sort of most exemplified by the hugely successful financier Jay Gould, who quipped that he could hire one half of the working class, i.e. how he viewed Pinkerton's detective agency, to kill the other half of the working class and those that were striking. Um, And perhaps... One of the most notorious um, events in the in the Pinkerton Detective Agency from this point on is 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 with the, the agent James McParland, who helped bring down the the sort of so called Molly Maguires in Pennsylvania. I was wondering if you could just sort of speak to us about the Molly Maguires. Well, I mean, it's important to also reflect on the fact
1: that Pinkerton himself was in the years before his death, uh, of anti-trade union, pro-big business. I mean, he writes in an 1873 pamphlet called General Principles of Pinkerton's National Detective Agency. And in it, he says, Every trade union has for its vital principle, whatever is professed, the concentration of brute force to gain certain ends. Then the deadly spirit of communism steals in. And I think that encapsulates not only Pinkerton's attitude toward business and organized labor, but also these kind of early days of American anti-communism, which we associate most with the first and second Red Scares of the 1919, 1920, and then the 1940s and 1950s. But this anti-communist sense exists in America in the 19th century as well, alongside anti-anarchism and all these kind of things. So, but the story of the Molly Maguires is fascinating and happens while Pinkerton is still alive. In the 1870s, and it also involves perhaps one of his most famous agents, James McParland, who's another immigrant, uh, this time from Ireland, uh, originally called James McParland. He added a D onto the end of his name because that's what he wanted to do. Uh, not an uncommon thing with Irish naming conventions. The, the great Irish politician uh, Eamon de Valera was born Eamon de Valero. So And he changed it to De Valera. Anyway, so so Macparland uh, comes to the United States. He's born somewhere between 1839 and 1844. We're not entirely clear. Uh, he was from a Catholic family, but he went to a Presbyterian school. So he had knowledge of the, the traditions and workings of both sides in that kind of sectarian uh, kind of debate. And he was also, interestingly, what is called a cold soak in detective uh parlance in that he could drink a lot without getting drunk and this was a A handy handy
2: talent to have (laughs) handy this was a very
1: handy talent for him to have he could drink anyone else under the table and not get drunk himself or not have the appearance of being drunk and still retain all his faculties and that was really important to what mcparland uh was doing So he meets uh, Pinkerton in 1872 uh, after working for another private detective agency in Chicago. Uh, Now, I mean, Pinkerton's quite, I mean, he's fairly temperance-focused and something of a disciplinarian. McParland enjoys a drink and is a bit more, uh, let's say, less temperance-focused and less of a disciplinarian than Pinkerton. Uh, And this job to do with the Molly Maguires comes up because of the labor and ethnic conflicts that are taking place in the Western Pennsylvania coal fields, because the majority of the, or a lot of the laborers are Irish, uh, Irish immigrants working in the really dirty and dangerous uh, coal mining industry. So there's there's a, a union called the Working Men's Benevolent Association, which is primarily led by English immigrants from Lancashire. But alongside that, there's a secretive Irish organization Uh, called the Molly Maguires, whose roots go back to where uh, Macparland comes from in Armagh, uh, in Ireland. Uh, And what they did was, in order to kind of try and improve their conditions, they they set out to try and terrorise the mine supervisors, the officials, uh, who were mostly of Welsh, English and uh, other kind of Protestant descent. So there's, there's a labor relations thing here, and there's also a, a religious and
2: kind of ethnic uh, conflict going on here. So at this point, you know, McParlin then is ingratiating himself with, with the Molly Maguires. But, I mean, how, do, how does it all end up shaking out? You know, you've, you've given us a big buildup. <laughs> well, I mean, so, I mean, the idea at the time, uh, is to
1: penetrate the Molly Maguires. Is to put spies inside the organisation to identify the leaders and then able to bring them to arrest and hang them. Uh, so McParland, uh you know, does this with a degree of ruthlessness. I mean, he is so dedicated to his undercover job that he doesn't warn. Uh, there's a Welshman called uh, John John P. Jones. Uh, who was a, a supervisor at the the Lehigh and Wilkesbury Coal Company, uh, and he could have warned him that he was about to be assassinated, and he doesn't, because he doesn't want to blow his cover. So he's kind of kind of complicit in the deaths of the people he is ostensibly working for. Uh, but success—I mean, success—is the outcome of this because of the penetration of the Mollies, About twenty of the leaders are brought to justice and hanged. Depends on how you define justice and whether their cause was justified. You know, this is part of the long history of labor relations in America. Uh now, there's a lot of debate within the historiography about the Molly Maguire's episode because it has been so heavily mythologized by both sides in in history and in song and in films and in fiction. I mean it appears even in a a Sherlock Holmes uh book, uh, Sherlock Holmes story, uh the The Valley of Fear, which is based around the, the Molly Maguire's episode. I have drank at a pub called the Molly Guires. Well, there's a, there's a film made with uh, Sean Connery and Richard Harris in the 1970s, which is a kind of fictionalised account of the entire Molly Maguire's episode. Uh, Harris plays McParland, essentially, uh, in it. Uh, so the, because of the outcomes of this, uh, it's debatable how it all panned out. But 20 of the leaders were caught, they were hanged, and it helped to suppress... Uh, you know, labor agitation and the agitation for workers' rights in the Pennsylvania coal fields. And McParlin was seen with, you know, coming out of this in such a positive light. Uh, he's made chief of the Pinkertons, uh, Western Division, uh, which is its headquarters in Denver. Uh, and the, I mean, the Western Division really, really expands under his leadership by the, by the early part of the 20th century. There's 200 operatives in that region. Uh, they've got offices in eight Western cities. Uh, and they really continued uh, what happened back East and really shaped the development of, you know, labor relations and everything out West, you know, which is these kind of like, you know, the rowdy mining towns and all that kind of thing, the mining companies and all that kind of thing. So the Pinkertons are an important part of, under McParland, of this kind of move West and the development of Western United
2: States. Co- so, so there we have sort of the Pinkertons at their height, I guess, and public esteem seen as a force for law and order, um, even, even if we look back now and it's a bit more debatable. But I mean, fast forward to, to 1892, there's very much, a, you know, an event takes place, which I mean, it's debatable whether the Pinkerton reputation ever recovers from, um, or at least for the you know the next fifty years, um, both in the eyes of the public and as I'm sure you chat about it in the eyes of government. And that's the, the battle of Homestead, the Homestead Strike in in 1892. What what what's going on here, um, and how how do the Pinkertons get involved?
1: So we're back to Pennsylvania again, which is in many ways, one of the hearts of uh, labor disputes in Gilded Age America. Because you have the coal fields and the steelworks in Pennsylvania, workers are being made to work in terrible, dangerous conditions. So there's a considerable amount of agitation for unionization uh, and for better conditions for workers and their families. Uh, I mean, because in these days, when you work, say, for a, a big mining company or a steelworks, you live, you work in the steelworks, you live in a company town, you spend company scrip, in company shops, you're monitored by company police, so your life is not, you have no life outside of the company and everything, so unions are agitating for kind of better conditions, fairer conditions, better pay, all that kind of things for the worker, quite reasonable demands under the circumstances, but in Gilded Age America, big business is king. Uh, And if you're agitating for these demands, you're potentially a communist or an anarchist, Uh, and I mean anarchists are the ones with really bad reputations at this point in time. Uh, So that's the background to it. It's an immensely complicated era in in labor relations in the United States. So Andrew Carnegie uh, is one of the leading so-called robber barons, you know, alongside J.P. Morgan, uh, Jay Gould, uh, all of these figures who, you know. Create these giant industries which dominate America—the first mega corporations. You know, you know, Carnegie and the steel industry, Standard Oil, all the Morgan and finance, all of these.
2: Monopoly, a lot of monopolies emerging.
1: Monopolies yeah. and kind of—I mean—modern mega corporations, the first billion-dollar industries. Uh, so Homestead Steel uh, is a Homestead on the Mahon River. I never ever pronounced that correctly. Uh, I don't even know what you just said. <laughs> uh, it's on a river in Pennsylvania that I'm not going to try to pronounce again. Uh, Homestead in Pennsylvania is the home of, I mean, this is one of the most technologically advanced and profitable industrial facilities in the world in 1892. I mean, there's 12 steel mills there. They're churning out vast quantities of steel, which is utterly vital to Gilded Age America. Uh, It employs about 3,800 workers, and it's owned by the Scottish-American industrialist Andrew Carnegie. Although, I mean, he's had to give some say to the powerful union, the Amalgamated Association, which is representing Homestead's workers at the time. However, like most of the tycoons at the time, I mean, Carnegie saw the union's right to have a say in hiring and firing and in working conditions as a quite intolerable infringement on his rights as a business owner. As a business owner, he should say what happens in his business. The unions should not have a say. And Carnegie's right-hand man at Homestead, the chairman of Carnegie Steel, Henry Clay Frick, was of a very similar mind to Carnegie. Uh, and because of the, the power that the union was acquiring, in 1892, Frick decides to do something about it. And he opts to deunionize the workforce. Now, he doesn't do this by saying, you're no longer a member of a union, you're not allowed to be a member of a union. He does it by surrounding the plant with barbed wire, watchtowers and armed guards. And he brings in non-union strike-breaking workers to run the steelworks after he's fired all of the existing employees. Now, understandably, the Amalgamated Association and the former workers are slightly annoyed about this. So what they do is surround
2: and blockade the entire Homestead Steelworks to stop it functioning. And at this point in the story, I assume the Pinkertons are getting involved. And I'm going to take... I'm going to go out on a limb and say that they're not coming in to ride on the white horses on the side of the strikers, no.
1: You would be entirely correct in your surmise that the Pinkertons are on the side of Homestead Steel and Carnegie and Frick. So, this goes on for a while. Frick is desperate to remove the blockade and get the plant functioning again. I mean, you can't let a steelwork sit idle. It's got to be, I mean, just for the physical plant itself, you've got to keep the furnaces going, you've got to keep the smelters going. Otherwise, you cause damage to the steelworks. These things have to run 24 hours a day. And Frick is very, very conscious of that. So what he does is hires 300 heavily armed Pinkertons who actually come in and fight what is a sec- effectively a pitched battle with the blockaders, the former workers surrounding Homestead. Now, they even go so far as cruising down the river in barges armoured with steel plates. They're kind of like, they, they basically create mini battleships to cruise down the river uh, to come in on the river side of the workers to try and outflank them. Uh, now, but this doesn't go well. I mean, the barges get beached and the Pinkertons inside with their rifles and carbines and all that kind of thing are trapped inside and subjected to this withering fire from the blockaders. In fact, the former workers even managed to find a Civil War era cannon and position it on a nearby hillside to bombard the Pinkertons, uh, with it. And this is what, this is the Battle of Homestead. Uh, And what happens is seven workers and three Pinkertons are killed, which is, which is actually less of a death toll than you'd, you'd think, uh, for such a protracted battle. It lasts for a while. And the Pinkertons are forced into this ignominious retreat. They are not victorious. But four days later, actually, it's the governor of Pennsylvania has has had enough and being badgered by Frick and Carnegie, he sends in 8,000 state militia to disperse the blockade and reopen Homestead on conditions that are amenable to Frick and Carnegie. Uh, I mean, some of the former workers, they managed to hold out until November. It's basically all over for the Amalgamated Association. And in the wake of the Battle of Homestead, I mean, the union is all but destroyed. Although it does undergo a significant resurgence, actually, in the years of the Great War, you know, 1914 to 1918. Uh... And the role of Pinkert the Pinkertons is memorialized in a widely popular folk song from the time called Father Was Killed by a Pinkerton Man, which was a very popular song at the time. I mean in many ways you can say that I mean Homestead really is the iconic representation of this clash between between different visions of what freedom, you know, means in America. You know, there's Carnegie and Frick on one on one side who believe that freedom means the unfettered right of business, of property rights and you know little if any state or federal regulation of business you know and I put and you have an opposition to this the workers vision of freedom which stresses kind of collective rights and independence from the tyranny of the employers and a fair deal for the working person and the pinkertons obviously pitch up uh on the side of whoever paid them and it's you know many historians have argued that the pinkertons are a vitally important part of this gilded age pro business Anti labor environment.
2: Indeed, and I mean the the one thing about the Homestead strike, though, is it certainly you know it does come back to haunt the the reputation of the Pinkertons. I mean, you know, one example um, that, that that I read is the fact that you know in, in the hay, the Haymarket riots that take place in, in eighteen eighty six between between sort of anarchists and 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 law forces um, in Illinois, and they they are the seven anarchists are sentenced to death, p- partially based on strong testimony from a Pinkerton agent, um, because in 1886, they were trusted. Fast forward to 1893, four of those anarchists had been hanged, but the other three were pardoned, um, you know, a year after sort of the the Homestead strike, because partially on the basis the Illinois governor looked at the Pinkerton testimony, assu- assumed the worst, Assumed that, you know, oh, well, they were just saying that because, you know, they were in the employ of industrialists. And, you know, is, is this sort of typical of the way things went for the Pinkertons in the wake of Homestead?
1: Well, I think, I mean, even before Homestead, there's, there's been a lot of debate within government in the federal government about the employment of private detectives like the Pinkertons. The Pinkertons is the most famous and biggest example of private detectives being employed by the government. And it's because of this kind of continuing reputation for
2: shady dealings, for killings, all that kind of thing. And we should just say at this point, that's because America doesn't have a national police force, you know, in the way that countries such as Britain and France were sort of going down these routes of more formal police forces. America's sort of very much becoming, you know, starting to consider these measures maybe later than most. Yes, I mean, there's
1: there are kind of... The roots of national intelligence agencies and police agencies, with you know, for example, the creation of the the Secret Service, which initially is tasked more with anti counterfeiting, uh, and also tasked with dealing with, for example, the the Ku Klux Klan uh, during the the Reconstruction era. But they are not a national police force in any any real sense. And America doesn't really have any formalized intelligence agencies. Uh, it's not until the 1880s and the creation of the, the Office of Naval Intelligence is America's first real formalized intelligence agency. But there's still a lot of debate going on about the employment of organizations like the Pinkertons on behalf of the, the federal government because they had been hired between 1885 and 1892, for example. Washington, the federal government, had hired private detectives, mostly Pinkertons, on 28 different occasions. After Homestead, this comes to a shuddering, crunching halt. I mean, there was a considerable amount of sympathy in America at large and within government for the homestead workers and the way that they have been treated. And this made, makes the, the government hiring of Pinkertons a particularly sensitive topic. And following on, I mean, there's inquiries into what happens at Homestead. In 1893, uh, Congress passes a law specifically banning the use of Pinkertons uh, from government work. So the Anti-Pinkerton Act, as it's referred to, and in some ways, the Anti-Pinkerton Act provokes, in a small way, it's partially provoking the creation of a genuine federal police agency. So pr- fast forward to you know 1909, President Theodore Roosevelt's Attorney General, uh, Charles J. Bonaparte, in January 1909, he writes to Roosevelt justifying the creation of what he calls a Bureau of Investigation, which he started formalizing in the later part, 1908, and this has come about because of the inadequacy uh, of Secret Service agents who are being loaned to the Department of Justice to do stuff that is really out with the remit of the Secret Service. Now, this is eventually barred by Congress. Secret Service are not allowed to work for the Department of Justice anymore. And also the congressional prohibition against hiring Pinkertons. So Bonaparte argues we need a new national detection force and investigative force uh, to detect crime and, and bring criminals to justice at relatively low cost. Now, he's arguing that it's going to be efficient and made up of experts, and this very, very much chimes with the themes of the day. If the Pinkertons chimed with the themes of Gilded Age America, what Bonaparte is suggesting of a Bureau Inve- of investigation chimes with the ideals of the progressive era, efficiency, the prominence of expertise. So it's he's He's almost in some ways advocating a progressive-era detective agency.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, that's really interesting. The progressives, by and large, hated the you know, Pinkerton agency. I mean, there was numerous progressive exposés done on Pinkerton Actions designed sort of to make them, almost, you know, in many ways justifiably look bad. Um, yeah, and, you know, what, much...
1: what Bonaparte is suggesting there is what becomes what's called the Bureau of Investigation, which will eventually become the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the, the modern-day FBI. So it's the roots of that. So the Pinkertons aren't responsible for the FBI. The FBI isn't... Hi- what becomes the FBI isn't hiring Pinkertons. It's in a reaction to the methods and the reputation of the Pinkertons and what Congress have done and the need for a national police force that the FBI eventually comes into existence.
2: Yeah, I mean, and we should say, though, the, the Pinkertons don't just disappear. I mean, the, the Pinkertons are still hired by... You know, still hired by companies to to deal with strikes until 1937. Um, perhaps not uncoincidentally, like the the time when America is in the midst of passing its two most famous pro union laws, in the, in the form of the National Labor Relations Act and the Fair Labor Standards Act that are passed under the New Deal. But but going back, um, I think you know, obviously we've we've presented how the government reacted in in quite a harsh way to the Pinkertons. But it's also important to note that the public in the Gilded Age and even the Progressive Era had mixed emotions about the Pinkertons. Um, Some viewed them as law and order, personified as as Victorian moral, you know, sort of enforcing Victorian morals on on society, some of which people liked. Um, They were also, and this is a very important part of it, they were an important part of American folklore. This is partly to do with, you know, the, the sort of writings of Alan Pinkerton himself, who who sort of portrays his defe- his detective agency in the form of a sort of what you would think of as a sort of spy novel, and and also this is era of the dime novels, which are which are all which have so many, uh, you know, very much the genre, um, the, the, sorry, the very much the the sort of detective genre is a big part of it. So the Pinkertons don't have a completely negative you know, sort of perception in the American public. Oh no, no, I mean not at all. I mean, you know, uh, you know, McParland
1: and the Molly Maguire's episode is portrayed as I mean by by Pinkerton himself, but also by novels and all that thing, as, you know, this heroic figure of McParland protecting America from from terrorism, you know, from an outbreak of domestic terrorism. That is what McParland is standing against, and he's saving America from from terror. Uh so you know, it may, you can say a nineteenth century war on terror. Uh, only its you know, domestic mm-hmm. uh, you know, terrorism so yeah i mean and the, as i said you know, the the molly maguire's episode appeals appears in arthur conan doyle's sherlock holmes valley of fear from 1915 uh, it's widely assumed that uh, the mcparland actually appears as uh the old man in several of dashiel hammett's Crime novels. Uh, one of the most notable American crime writers. Uh, so I mean, they they do have this this legacy in popular culture, uh, and in, uh, both at the time and now, uh, you know, you find. I mean,
2: Weezer had an album called Pinkerton. There you go. Was, was there not a t- There was a television show in the last fifty years called The Pinkertons as well. Yes. So yeah. Um, so I mean, they don't fade away either then or now. Um, I mean, can I move it on if we think to try and sum up? What, like, you know what was the important uh, importance of the Pinkertons I mean to me they 're just really interesting and in how they often sort of resembled american society 's sort of evolution and its needs I mean you have Alan Pinkerton you know and his early agency on the frontier trying to deal with these issues of counterfeiting that have emerged because American society is just sort of you know the, the frontiers are unorganized it's you know people can make you know a fast buck through counterfeiting then you've got them in the civil war you know one of the most seminal events in american history you know acting as you know you know embracing the sort of surveillance aspect infiltration spies and then finally you really have them you know at their worst um, they are capitalism at its very rawest and its worst during the golden age when as Jay Gould said, you know, he could hire parts of the working class to kill, um, you know, the other half of the working class. So, I mean, that's, I see them as sort of, you know, very much a, you know, the American Odyssey sort of fault tracing that journey. I don't know what you see. No, I mean, I think you're right. I mean,
1: the, the Pinkertons are kind of very much avatars of their their time and Alan Pinkerton himself and McParland and other figures. And I think it's important to reflect on the role that the Pinkertons play in in surveillance in America. And that we often think, sometimes of, modern, you know, private surveillance by Google, by Facebook, by having you know, our, our lives monitored by that as a modern invention. But if you look at the history of Pink, the Pinkertons, if you look at the history of detection and private investigation in America, that private surveillance, surveillance by private companies for the benefit of other companies is not a new thing. It's not a modern invention. The Pinkertons are very much, you know, the. They're the Google. They're the Facebook. They're the private surveillance of the 19th century and into the early 20th century. And so understanding that history, you know, shows us that what we're experiencing today is nothing new. It was just experienced in a different way. But I think also your point about them being kind of the raw, you know, they're the cutting edge of Gilded Age capitalism. They're the sword that that Gilded Age capitalism uses to keep the unions down to try and infiltrate uh, union movements is is entirely entirely correct and they're an important part of not just the history of surveillance and intelligence in America but a, a crucially important part of the history of of labor relations and the history of organized labor
2: yeah definitely and for those who don't know they still exist to this day very big in india very big yes, in india the yeah. pinkertons are still around but, the, but surprisingly given where you know uh, alan pinkerton was born himself they don't have an agency in britain uh, so there you go. They never actually went back to their roots. There's not one. There's there's not a big building in the Garbles. Um, no, <laughs> no memorial in the Garbles for Alan Pinkerton. There exactly. Um, cool. So that, I really enjoyed that discussion. Um, and we are going to be back next month, where we're going to be joined by our good friend and numerous times has been a you know almost our, our correspondent uh, on this show. He's been on so many times as uh, uh, Fraser McCallum.
1: Yes, indeed. Yeah, Fraser's going to be on, on a, an episode I'm very much looking forward to. Cause it's an area that Fraser and I are both very, very interested in. We're going to be looking at the paranoid cinema of the 1970s and how films like The Conversation, Three Days of the Condor, All the President's Men, how they reflect that kind of paranoid era
2: in American politics and society. Audience, I look forward to learning just as much as you because I have no idea. <laughs> cool. So thanks again, Malcolm. And no, Thank uh, you, Mark. And thank you again uh, for listening. Cheerio. Bye.
0: Bye. There's a man who leads a life of danger To everyone he meets, he stays a stranger Whenever every move he makes Another chance he takes he won't live to see tomorrow Secret Agent Man Secret Agent Man They've given you a number And taking away your name Beware of pretty faces that you find a face can hide an evil mind I'll be careful what you say Or you will give yourself away I'll tell you